This is Space 101 LPFM, Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage, exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Good evening and welcome to the February 26, 2023 edition of Cascade of History here on Space 101.1 FM. We're broadcasting live all over Seattle, probably part of Kirkland too, where I grew up across the lake, and of course streaming everywhere at space101fm.org. We are the only live show that talks about people doing cool stuff for and with Pacific Northwest history. We've got a lot of great guests tonight. Um, Quick thing, though, I don't know if you guys had snow in your neighborhood, but I had snow in my neighborhood this morning, and the quality of the light on the roofs of the houses and just that, it melted pretty fast, but something about the early morning light with the snow was just awesome. I hope we get more of that before the winter wraps up. Um, Joining us tonight, we're going to be talking to Megumi Nagata for Culture. They've got a Heritage Project grant opportunity coming up pretty soon, and they've got workshops and things, and so if you're a heritage organization in King County, you'll want to listen in on that and see if there's things your group can apply for. We're also going to talk to Stephanie Johnson Tolliver. She's the president of the Black Heritage Society of Washington. They partnered up with Mohai uh, for an exhibit about black architects and designers. It's on display, I think, till the end of April, but they've done a special local component. So we'll hear from Stephanie about that. But first up, uh, in just a moment, we're going to hear from our very first guest, uh, special guest, Bob Ferguson, who's the Attorney General of Washington State. I'm just going to bring him on right now. And Bob, can you hear me? I sure can, Felix. Ah. Great to hear your voice. Yeah, same here. Thanks for making time on a Sunday night. As I I was explaining to you off the air a few minutes ago, it's such an inconvenient time for our guests. (laughs) But I like to think of everyone sort of uh, uh, kind of uh, cozied up around their radios, their streaming devices all around the Pacific Northwest and listening on a Sunday night. No better topic to talk about than Pacific Northwest history. And you and I have been talking about Northwest history a lot in the last three years. <laughs> mm-hmm. that, it, it, it's true, and especially you, and uh, we've been actually following your lead on this important issue we're going to be talking about, so really appreciate all your work on it. Yeah, and it means a lot to the people here in the neighborhood, because, you know, those Space 101.1 FM is everywhere through streaming. We're, we're in the old, my the studio I'm sitting in is in the old Master-at-Arms quarters in the gatehouse at historic Sandpoint Naval Air Station, now Magnuson Park. Mm-hmm. And the National Archives branch is just, I just drove past it on my way here um, over from Wallingford tonight. It's been in this neighborhood for, oh, I think something more like, something like 70 years, mm-hmm. or going on 70 years. And it was threatened a couple of years ago. And that's when you and I first started talking a lot about this bizarre process where uh, an obscure branch of the federal government sought to sell that real estate out from under everybody and essentially close down those archives and send them off to California and Missouri, I think. Um, is, I mean, I, what I'd love to do is just kind of revisit that history a little bit because that's three years ago now. And I think, you know, there's, there's a lot has happened in those last three years. There was this little mm-hmm. pandemic that we just are still kind of mm-hmm. at the tail end of. But what's when you when you tell this story um, to somebody, what's the I mean, how do you describe the early days of, of this kind of debacle that, that arose here around the National Archives in Seattle three years ago? Yeah. And, and I think even sort of before getting to the history of it, as as you well know, and as your listeners should know as well is that we still have work to do to preserve 
these documents, which really represent the DNA of our region, that's located right here in Washington State. And so whether it's critical records for tribes across the Northwest or, you know, priceless uh, and irreplaceable documents related to the internment of Japanese Americans uh, here in, in this part of the country, those and so many other records are there at the National Archives. And you're right, these obscure branches of the federal government, we're going to move them thousand miles away, really for, for no good reason. And so yeah, they all started about two and a half years ago when I, I think you were the one who really broke the story that these obscure agencies back in the bowels of the federal government back east decided they wanted to take these, sell the building, um, which is on valuable real estate, obviously, but sell the building and move the records. That's the key part, move the records a thousand miles away. And that got my attention uh, in part because I have some awareness of the National Archives, primarily through my late father, who, who loved the place and spent a lot of time there. And that's when I got involved with my legal team to see if there was something we could do from a legal perspective to stop the federal government from taking this action. Yeah, it, it was a real roller coaster with so many different agencies and so many different players trying to get involved. And, you know, it, the the archives had, if you weren't aware of them, they were sort of under the radar. Mm -hmm. But what, what was your, what did your dad, what kind of research did he do there? What was the stuff he was into? You know, it's a good question, Felix. I'm, I'm one of seven kids. In fact, I just saw literally all my siblings tonight just came from a family gathering. And uh, my father's passed away now. We often wonder what he was doing there because he had seven kids. He's a very involved father. So we don't know exactly what he was doing. But what I would say about my father, which I suspect your listeners can really appreciate, is he was, he grew up and born and raised in Washington State and loved the history of this area and was really absorbed by it, just found it fascinating. And he would somehow in his free time spend enough time at the archives to be on a first-name basis with the folks who work there. And he took all of his kids at some point. We all went to the National Archives with Dad to pick up something he'd ordered or to do some research with him that he wanted to do. And it, it became sort of a family joke. My sister, who I saw tonight, she's involved, by the way, in, in historical issues, as you know. And uh, when she had gone back east to graduate school, when she came back for, like, Christmas vacation, she landed at SeaTac Airport. My dad went to pick her up. And she hadn't seen her friends or her family in months, of course. And when my dad picked her up, uh, she was excited to go home. He said, no, no, first we're going to make a stop at the National Archives. So, so that was how, how into it he was. So, so I grew up on it really in, in all seriousness. And really, you know, his love and appreciation for that history, you know, it, it really, all of us, all, all the siblings really, I think, share that in, in different ways. And so when I heard this was happening, I just really felt, again, partly um, professionally, but honestly, the, the personal connection to me was very meaningful, and I just felt it was something my, you know, honestly, my dad would want me to do. Yeah, yeah, and there, it's sort of a, I mean, it's a point of pride to have a branch of the National Archives here in Seattle. Mm -hmm. it, it serves Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Alaska, and it serves all the tribes there. It And what, mm -hmm. I, what I point out to people is that, you know, for... Um, for Washington, you know, we didn't become a state till 1889, mm -hmm. and there were huge numbers of European Americans arriving here in the 1840s, 1850s, really. And so we had about 30 or 40 years of really the federal government. They were, though, like not the only sheriff in town, but they were the big sheriff mm -hmm. in town. And so, so many of the critical records for the 1850s, 60s, 70s, and 80s are federal records that are at that facility there and that would have been moved away had this been allowed to happen. Because, like, Oregon, of course, became a state in 1859. So the federal government wasn't as big a deal to them as it was to mm -hmm. Washington. But the, the, the legal battle, I remember, 
I remember it was so frustrating because it felt like when the news came out in, I think it was January of, January 15th, actually more than three years ago of 2020, mm -hmm. right before the pandemic, it seemed like the decision was made. It seemed that there was nothing anybody could do. And I remember it was a Sunday and I went to your website and there's like a, you know, send a message <laughs> to the attorney general, like a, a box yeah. I filled out, like, you know, I filled out what I knew and everything. And then, you know, I, I, at some point or other, we talked about it in the, in the days not too long after that. But how long, do you recall how long it took to sort of figure out what the legal strategy was going to be in order to, to try and kind of sub, to kind of turn around what had been a really kind of a, a, a misguided process that hadn't followed the letter of the federal law? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I can't recall precisely, but what I recall very clearly, Felix, is, you know, you bringing attention to this issue. And I remember thinking to myself, well, we've got to at least look at this. At the time, I had no idea, right, yeah, what yeah. the legal issues might or might not be. But yes, the decision had been made at that point, right? And they'd done it really in the dark, as you know. It was, it was kind of outrageous that these faceless bureaucrats back east would make this decision without any public process out here, without notifying tribes. It really was outrageous. And so... I did what, frankly, I often do in the office when there's something I read about or hear about that I think is wrong, that I think is outrageous, but that doesn't mean it's illegal, right? And for my office to take action, obviously, as the attorney general, someone or some entity had to act in an illegal way. And so I did was pulled together some of the top folks in my office. We talked through what the situation was, uh, explained what we knew about it, and I simply asked them, Go do some research, learn everything you can about these obscure agencies, and see if they follow the law. Because there are good news about our system of government is there are steps these entities must take, rules they must follow before they can sell important property like this and move records like this. And so the team simply started that process of doing a deep dive, and they came back after about, I think it was about two, a week or two of research on it. And they came back and they said, you know what, we, we think they missed some steps that they were required to take. And that's when we then started the process of reaching out to tribes, nonprofits, organizations across the, really the Northwest to assemble a coalition of organizations to file this lawsuit. Yeah. And it was it was it was fun to watch that because it felt like, OK, it's like the battle's been joined. You know, it's not yeah. like this thing's not just going to be allowed to happen just out of you know sheer momentum or whatever. So it was it was really gratifying to be a citizen of Washington and know that <laughs> you and your team were working on it because you ultimately were successful. Now, yeah. and I know that it's. There's some recent developments around, I mean, I don't want to get too deep into esoterica, but I know as part of the preparations to, to go to, like, to engage them in a, in a legal battle, you had to do something called discovery, right, and get all sorts mm -hmm. of documents and things? Yes. What was that? Wasn't there some, were there some interesting highlights or were there things that you learned from discovery that, that still stand out in your memory? Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, a lot of folks, when they're part of a decision-making process in government, they don't often realize that. The other side, or in, a, or in a private company for that matter, the other side in a lawsuit can ask for information, documents, and you've got to turn those over. There are some exceptions, attorney-client privilege documents, but you've got to provide what's called discovery. You've got to provide information you have, emails, notes, um, letters that are relevant to the case. And so we made discovery requests to the federal government, and they had to turn over all these text messages and emails that these bureaucrats clearly never imagined would see the light of day generally, <laughs> let alone the front page of Seattle Times, or be talked about in a federal courthouse in downtown Seattle, all of which happened. I will say that well, what it revealed, honestly, was, you know, it's, look, I, I'm, I'm a government worker, and I appreciate government workers, but what I don't appreciate are any workers, in this case, federal workers, who frankly just didn't give a darn, okay, about 
what was happening, why these records matter to people out here, um, why the people in the Northwest want them to stay here, why they should stay here. They just didn't care, and that came through in the documents. They simply wanted to move these documents for whatever reasons they had. I will say on a personal note, to give you an example, though, of just how out of touch they were with this region, one of the text text messages or emails from the head of one of these agencies that was involved said words effective, Nobody cares about these records out there except for the attorney general. It's because, it's because this is what he wrote. It's because his father-in-law was a historian. Well, number one, it was my father, not father-in-law. Two, he was no historian. But number three, what they got most wrong about that was not only was I not the only one who cared, there were thousands and yeah. thousands, of course, of people who cared deeply about what was happening. And that, But that one note I thought just represented how out of touch they were and how little they cared about what was happening right here in our in our in our area? You know, it's a shame too because the 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 legislation or the law that they were working with, this Public Buildings Reform Board legislation, mm-hmm. which dated to the Obama era, but then was implemented in the by the Trump administration. It mm-hmm. actually it, it it was well intentioned, and I think there was mm-hmm. a list of something like twelve or thirteen properties, and all of mm-hmm. them, all the other properties, they fit the criteria of you know surplus, high value, mm-hmm. not being used for anything that anybody cares about. And I remember talking to the guy, the staffer from the Public Buildings Reform Board, really early on. I said, "Yeah, the, that list. I mean, it's a pretty good list, except for that that one in Seattle. I think I think you're going to have some mm-hmm. trouble with that one there." So, um, <laughs> no, it 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 it, it, no, it it's really true. And I mean, the intent behind it was to take it out of the decision making of elected officials who might have, you know, they might let <clears throat> politics in the way of what might be good decisions for surplusing these properties, like you said, and, and getting more value out of it. But unfortunately, the downside was folks who just wouldn't make any effort at all to really understand what was going on in this. Yeah, that kind of cynicism, that, that makes me angry just as, a, mm-hmm. as, as a person, as a taxpayer, as whatever. I just, I want that. I, I, I've worked mm-hmm. for the government before. I mean, it's, it's I, you've got to take it seriously. Um, yes. Now, in this discovery process, which ultimately led to, you know, they, they, the, the court found in, your, in the state of Washington's favor, mm-hmm. um, then the Biden administration formally reversed the decision, took this thing off that list from the, uh, what is it, the General Services Administration. It was a kind of an alphabet soup of agencies involved. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, it is. And it was, I, I think I learned from your office a couple of weeks ago, there was an opportunity where, because they were, those agencies were slow to respond in terms of sending you the documents you'd requested, they were, they were levied some kind of a fine. Yeah, so what's happened since we won, so the case was heard by a federal judge, Judge Kuhnauer, here in, in Seattle, and, and we won a total victory. And the judge said, no, you can't sell that property. You didn't follow the, the rules. Okay, so it was an unequivocal victory, which was great. But it became clear to me after we won that these agencies weren't promising to keep the records here in Washington State. So what our ruling did, Felix, which is an important distinction, is it prevented the sale of the building. But nice. It did not say that the federal government could not move the records and leave the building there. And that that may seem like a small point, but it's what matters, right? It's yeah, not yeah. the building, it's, it's the records that are there. And so I just told my team after we won, we're going to stay on this, and we're going to keep making freedom of information requests. This is outside litigation, but just as citizens, right, as an office, we can just make freedom of information requests to the federal government, and they have to turn over documents to you. And so what we do is about every six months, we make another round of these requests for documents related to the facility and the archives and the future of the archives. And so they've been obligated to turn those documents over. You'll be shocked, shocked to know, Felix, that they fail utterly at turning over those documents in the way they're supposed to. And so as a result, we've had to file lawsuits against these agencies 
for not giving us these documents. So we're just going to stay on these guys. And so what's happened is they had to pay these fines, pay our attorney fees, and it's many thousands of dollars. The most recent one, which I found fascinating, was that the amount had totaled about 150 grand of what they owed us. And we're finally getting the records. And I said to our team, I said, write to them and tell them they only have to pay $1. They can waive the other 150000 bucks, but they can only pay, they only have to pay $1 if, if they promise in writing they won't move the document. And their answer was no. So they paid the $150,000. So that tells us everything we need to know, Felix, yeah. about what these folks are thinking. They simply refuse to make that commitment to keep these records here. And that's the reason why we just have to be vigilant and stay on it. And, and otherwise, I do worry sometimes the moving trucks move in. I don't want to be dramatic, but I really do worry the moving trucks show up, they put the documents on them, and out they go. You know, and that's, I think about that too, because one of the, one of the highlights of the work that your team did was assembling a really amazing coalition of, mm-hmm. um, you know, indigenous tribes, um, mm-hmm. heritage organizations, wacko historian people like me, <laughs> um, you know, kind of various and sundry people who cared about this. And those, yeah. those people all showed up for all the different public hearings. They wrote yeah. letters. They, you know, they, they spoke to their uh, representatives in Congress and to our senators here mm-hmm. in, in all four states, I think. I think it was, it was, mm-hmm. it was all four states were involved. That's right. That's and that, right. And that coalition, to me, I, my fantasy is that that coalition would somehow, I don't know, be resurrected or would be re-empowered to kind of take to the next level and, like, engage the National Archives leadership in conversations about the future of Seattle. I as a as a media person with my you know my day job at Cairo, I've had a number of kind of off the record conversations with really high up leadership at NARA about this. And they're mm-hmm. just sort of cagey. They're kind of they don't yep. really want to commit. They're, yep. you know, they um, they point to the decades of deferred maintenance at that facility, at their other facilities. Mm-hmm. They point to kind of the missed opportunity of being able to digitize the holdings mm-hmm. they have to make them available I mean, that was one of the one of the things, the excuses they said when they were going to try and move everything was, well, it'll all be digitized and you can, you know, but right. what, one estimate it would take something like, I can't remember, it was like a thousand years to, yeah. <laughs> to digitize yeah. everything. So yeah. it's 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 like the, the, the process that began three years ago really daylighted the fact that people care about the archives. And I just wonder, I mean, what what can people do to take that next step? To, I mean, if, if they're willing to pay one hundred fifty thousand dollars, which probably in their budget isn't a huge amount of money. But if they're willing to pay 150, 150000 rather than, you know, agree to keep the records here, what can people do to kind of carry on the spirit of that coalition that your team put together to take it to the next level of, of conversation so people don't forget what happened three years ago? Yeah, I think the most important thing that listeners can do is to write to their members of Congress, to your U.S. senators, to your congressional representatives, and really implore them to do whatever they can to make sure that those documents here. And I think that's the single best thing to engage those federal representatives because it's a federal issue, right? These are federal agencies, not yeah. state agencies. Yeah. And so there's, well, that coalition is ready, is still in touch with each other, is ready and able to, to do the kind of work you're talking about. As you know, conversation is a two-way street. And these federal agencies, you say they're cagey, and I absolutely believe that. And one <laughs> thing I'll say, say, Felix, is I've been attorney general for 10 years, and you, you learn a few things in, in doing the job for 10 years. One thing I've learned in life is I know when someone or an organization does not want to solve a problem. Yeah, I know that. I, I, and I just, and this has all the red flags. They do not want to solve the problem. They do not want to commit to solving the problem. Therefore, they don't engage with the organizations and the tribes and the state and the jurisdictions and the individuals here who would work with them to find a solution. And that's what's so maddening about this is they are being cagey. 
and and that's why I worry so much about it. Yeah, and that was the you know one of the hallmarks of that coalition from a from the political level. It was bipartisan. I mean, I think Lisa Murkowski mm-hmm. signed on from Alaska. I think. Mm-hmm. One of, the, mm-hmm. one of the Republican senators from Idaho, I think yep. even some of the Republican representatives from Washington, all, yes. I think everyone but Dan Newhouse signed on, if I'm remembering correctly. I think, uh, you're, I think you're exactly right, because it's an issue that transcends politics. Hey, my late father was a Dan Evans Republican, right? It's got nothing to do with politics, <laughs> nothing to do with politics, right? And everything to do with the DNA of our region and, and making sure we protect it and keep it where it belongs, which is right here. And so it was a coalition we had over 600 pages of declarations written that we sent to Judge Kunauer as part of our case. I mean, it really was, in some respects, to your point here, one of the most rewarding, really, cases I ever worked on because it was a wonderful combination of something that mattered to a lot of people. Number two, it seemed like it was lost, to your point. It seemed like the decision was made and it was yeah. over. Yeah. So we were able to, to resurrect that and bring it back, but also the, the coalition, right? The wide range of people and organizations who all came together and really showed the lie of what these bureaucrats said that nobody cared. We had one public hearing. We just held one. I just held one. It was by Zoom. I think we did it by Zoom back then. Mm-hmm. And it went on for hours and hours and hours because so many people wanted to come and speak about why the archives should stay here. And it just showed how deep the feelings were in contrast to what the federal agencies were, were trying to do. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've looked at the other, there's other branches around the country. I think there's one in Los Angeles, there's one in mm-hmm. Boston, there's one in Denver. I think there's one in maybe Dallas. And mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I know, I've got to know a couple of the staff at the location here. I haven't talked to them for a couple of years, but during like the real hot and heavy part of this, maybe two years ago, mm-hmm. I, was, I was over there quite a bit. And I just, I looked around that place and it, it definitely, I mean, it could use several million dollars worth of maintenance. Yeah. It could use kind of a freshening up. Um, I know there was some talk about, you know, the, the value of that real estate, um, if that facility went away, mm-hmm. would be, you know, who knows what it would be in the in the real estate market. But there's a there's a big parking lot there. I, I kind of held out kind of the fantasy of a really cool combination that would take some of that unused land and, you know, mm-hmm. make it available for housing. Do some kind of partnership involving the city of Seattle, the state of Washington and the federal government. Again, I, I could be totally in fan- yep. fantasy land right now. But the idea of making that facility open and accessible and a destination because, you know, if you go to Mohai's library down in South Seattle or the Washington State Historical mm-hmm. Society in Tacoma, they're set up to have people come and they, you know, they frequently put on programs and invite people in. I always wanted the Seattle facility to feel more welcoming. And I think mm-hmm. the, the pandemic obviously prevented a lot of that stuff from moving forward. But I just, I guess, I just, I'm sort of have kind of this level of frustration and kind of, because I see how cool that could be because I feel like it's yeah. a, a political thing. If that facility is, if more people are made aware of it than just the, the usual suspects, it could be a really cool resource that people would come to for miles around for programs and lectures and all sorts of cool stuff. But I don't get the sense that the National Archives Administration back in D.C., I don't get the sense that they care that much about that kind of programming and stuff. Um, I think oh, they, I they, they have the... Ch- go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Say, Felix, sorry to start up, but what I would say is I'm just being honest about this. I don't think they care at all. I'm just being real honest. Yeah. They do not care at all. And I, I hate to say that, right, about about these agencies and the people there, but it's, it's the truth, and yeah. your listeners should know that. They do not care at all. If they cared, they would act in a way that is consistent with caring, and it's just the opposite. They don't give us the documents we request and that we're entitled to. They obstruct everything. They'd rather pay $150,000 of taxpayer dollars yeah. rather than promising to keep the records <clears throat> here and trying to find a solution. We've given them opportunity after opportunity to come to the table and find a solution, and they simply refuse. And it's worth pointing out, important to point out, 
that the folks who work here locally want these records to stay. These are Absolutely. the folks back east, right? These bureaucrats back in D.C. who just, for whatever reason, cannot wrap their minds around the idea that they really should change their perspective and try to find the kind of solution you're talking about or something else that would work. Yeah, yeah. I, I get the sense, too, that, you know, I've, I've been to the Library of Congress before, and they have this beautiful facility out in Culpeper, Virginia, where they do all this digitization of record, you know, audio records and film and video and stuff. And, and they're, mm-hmm. they're really well-funded. I get the sense NARA has kind of a chip on its shoulder about them being sort mm-hmm. of the poor stepchild, where the Library of Congress has all these beautiful facilities and gorgeous blonde wood furniture and everything. Mm-hmm. And NARA is mm-hmm. kind of more like this sort of down-in-the-trenches kind of, you know. But, I mean, but that, that's, I don't know, that, that's, that's a perception thing where I feel like with the right people in charge, and, and they're all, you know, I don't know, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to ascribe any kind of ulterior motives, but I do think that, that apathy at the yep. higher level, at the, at the administrative level, is part of the problem in terms of um, a place like Seattle not feeling like it can really kind of break free and do, do cool programming and partner with the community and create the kind of partnerships and long relationships that will make it a facility for everyone, not just the people who, you know, come to the public meetings and write the letters and stuff. So I that's don't know. Absolutely, that, 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 <clears throat> no, that's absolutely right. And so, look, we're, we're just going to keep on it. And so our, our role right now in the AG's office is we continue to make these freedom of information requests, and that requires them to turn over documents. <laughs> so we're saying update on what's going on related that's, to the facility or potential moves. And that's what we can do on the legal side, but we great. do still need our federal mm-hmm. delegation to really step in and take decisive <laughs> steps to make sure the records stay here. That's great. I didn't understand that part, that that was an ongoing thing doing the FOIA. That's brilliant. That's oh, a, yeah. That's, that's a great strategy. That's hilarious. Oh, 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 oh 100%. <laughs> no, it has been, I mean, well, one, one thing I've learned in life is you, you, can win, you can win a case, you can win something, but if you don't stay on the issue, things can change over time, and next thing you know, your, your victory has been turned yeah. into a defeat if you're not really staying on it. So on this one, I just told the team, we're staying on it. We're going to keep making these requests. We're going to keep getting documents. And we put them on our website. They're available for the mm-hmm. public to see. That's great. You know, the text message about the, <clears throat> the guy saying nobody cares except for the attorney general's father-in-law, right? It's all there. <laughs> so it's transparent. And uh, and it really does give a sense of, uh, of the work we need to do to preserve these really critical records. I feel like the ghost of Ken Baring is lurking somewhere in the background, <laughs> trying to move all the exercise equipment out of the Seahawks facility and take exactly. them down to L.A., but... Exactly right. We won't let it happen. But right. uh, but 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 you you've been. A, I mean, really, you're the one that daylighted this. We could not have done the work, honestly, if you if it hadn't come to your attention. If you hadn't daylighted, so really, Felix. I mean, you're you're the one that really should take a victory lap. It just but, but it's been an honor to work on the case, and the whole team really feels that way in our office. Right on. And uh, Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson, thanks for joining us tonight on Space 101.1 FM on Cascade of History. We really appreciate you making time on a Sunday night. Thanks so much, Felix. You have a great night. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Well, we have a couple great guests coming up. Um, in a moment, we're going to talk to Megumi Nagata of Four Culture. That's the King County Heritage Organization that, uh, or King County Organization that funds heritage projects here in King County, of course. And after that, we'll talk to Stephanie Johnson Tolliver of the Black Heritage Society. And but first, we're going to hear this because, well, we just talked to the Attorney General for the State of Washington. So let's let's pay tribute to the State of Washington.
I think you probably heard me in the background saying, I'll put you on hold. I didn't turn my microphone off. That's because I'm a pro. Um, that was that wonderful Washington band, Sicko, and their version of Washington, My Home, our official state song, which I think dates back to the 1950s. Um, it's not, it sounds, their version, of course, is updated. I think they recorded that in the 1990s as part of a compilation of all f- songs for all 50 states. And um, they added that part about that fight, fight, fight part. That's not in the original version that I think... Oh, I'm blanking on the name of the composer, Helen. I'm blanking on her last name. That's terrible. Should have written that down in my notes. All right. Well, uh, let's um, bring a Nagumi on the phone here. Hi. Can you hear me? Hi. Can Hi. You, hey, there you are. Thank you so much for joining us on Cascade of History. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. So, Megumi Nagata, you're with Four Culture, right? Yes, that's correct. Now, I saw something the other day that Four Culture has another one of its uh, wonderful grant opportunities on the horizon for heritage projects. Yeah, uh, Heritage Projects. Uh, it's an annual program of ours. Uh, it funds uh, various projects that are related to heritage and history in King County. And yeah, it's, it's open right now. I remember when I worked for Mohai back in the late 90s and early 2000s, we used to apply regularly for, I think, sustaining support, but we also did Heritage Special Projects. Is this, was this, is this the program formerly known as Heritage Special Projects? Yeah, I think it was called Heritage Special Projects uh, previously. Yeah. Um, yeah. And give, give me an example of like what some people have successfully gotten grants for in the last year or two, projects that are interesting or that sort of fit the, fit the parameters pretty well. Yeah, so uh, as I said, like, uh, the Heritage Projects really funds various types of projects. Um, so one example I can give you right now um, is a documentary project. It's a 30-minute documentary. This was... Um, Apply, proposed by an individual applicant. Um, it was about a documentary about uh, Seattle Chinese Community's Girls' Drill Team. Um, it was their 70th anniversary last year, and the applicant wanted to uh, produce a 30-minute documentary to talk about the history of the drill team and what it meant for the for the Ch- Seattle Chinese community. That's, um, that's cool. And what? How much was the? How much were they awarded in that for that project? Do you recall? Um, I don't recall how much exactly. Um, I believe it was around six thousand um, dollars. Yeah, which, which is a great amount of money. And I know oftentimes that money can be leveraged with private donations. And, and I think does it have to be matched one for one with other dollars, or are there requirements no. like that? That's not. No, okay. we don't. Yeah, we don't require a match for this grant. Now, I know you have some workshops coming up for people who may not know how to apply for a grant like this or want some additional assistance. When, how soon are those coming? Yeah, so we have one um, next Wednesday, March March 1st, um, and then another one on March 7th. And we actually have a recording of the workshop on our, on our website as well. And, and I've done a few grant applications in my time. It's been a long time since I've done one, thankfully. Um, any estimate, like how long it takes to fill out and do all the different attachments and everything to, to properly put together a heritage project grant for for culture? Yeah, I mean, we uh, if you you know uh, have everything put together, um, uh, gathered everything ready, uh, it shouldn't take more than like fifteen twenty minutes to put everything in the application form. Um, hmm. But uh, well, it, it kind of depends on how much you prepare in, in advance. Um, putting putting everything in the application form itself is pretty easy, uh, I would say. Um, the first thing you want you want to do definitely is to get an account on our uh, through our grant portal and 
that takes a, actually a little bit of time um, because we, we have to set it up for you. But um, other than that, the application is available online and uh, you can access it right away. Yeah, and, you know, for people like me, I, I worked at Mohai for seven years. I worked at some other nonprofit organizations back in the 90s. And, you know, the Four Culture and its predecessor, I think King County Cultural Resources, was always a really great organization to work with because it always seemed like um, the staff and the, the board and the people serving on the grant review panels, they really wanted to su- your project to succeed. I've, I've worked with some funders where they're looking for way- reasons they can say no, like, oh, they didn't, they didn't cross that T properly, they didn't, you know, and it always felt like Four Culture, in my experience, was really positive and encouraging and welcoming. Is that still the case? I hope. I hope. I hope the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that kind words. Yeah, uh, we strive to be as supportive as possible, and we definitely want our applicants to be successful. Um, we provide various types of support uh, and resources for our applicants, um, including uh, we we review uh, four culture staff reviews draft application for oh, wow. applicants, and we can make uh we can suggest edits or we can uh give you comments on your draft oh that's great and then so you probably i'm assuming you can't do that like probably the day it's due you probably have to get it to you guys pretty like far yeah, in advance we, yeah. <laughs> yeah we definitely um we actually <laughs> asked for about two weeks uh before okay. the deadline uh, to so that we have plenty of time to review your draft and get get the comments back to the applicant okay now I remember in the past, like I think in back in 2009 or maybe the year before 2009, in advance of the centennial of the Alaska Yukon Pacific Exposition, there was um, I, I could be remembering incorrectly, but I believe that there was a focus, like they, there was a special emphasis that year for that grant round on projects related to the Alaska Yukon Pacific Centennial. Is there any specific focus or area of emphasis that Four Culture kinds of projects that Four Culture really wants to support these days, or is it sort of wide open? Uh, it's really wide open, yeah. Um, I always uh, am impressed and surprised how uh, how wide range of topics and uh, subjects people uh, propose to uh, focus on in their in their projects. So yeah, it's definitely it's really wide range of topics. And you know, for culture, of course, we, this station, Space One Hundred One Point One FM, we get support from you guys, and we're super grateful for it because it's a big part of our. You know, we, we have a funding from a variety of sources, and it's it's a key part of our diversity of funding is the stuff we get from For Culture. Um, for those who don't know, um, can you give me a kind of the thumbnail of what For Culture actually does in addition to the Heritage Project stuff? Can you get a paint sketch a little bit about For Culture for us? Yeah, for sure. So uh, for culture, we are a cultural funding agency for King County. So we provide uh, financial support through grant programs and also technical assistance. And we also have a public art department who manages public art commissions in King County. Do you guys still have that cool office down on Prefontaine Place? Yes, we do. What a neat, one of the coolest offices in downtown (laughs) Seattle. Because there's a gallery associated with it. You guys have offices upstairs with big windows and stuff, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah we, we have the yeah gallery spaces open, and we I believe we have a new show coming up in March. All right. uh, yeah. Okay, so we'll let you go here in a second, but just um, tell us again when the deadline is for Heritage Projects and then where people can go online to get all the information they need in order to apply. Yeah, so the deadline to apply is March 23rd, uh, that's Thursday at 5 p.m., uh, 5 p.m. sharp, and if... Uh, your listeners wanted to get any information about the program, they can go to www.forculture.org 
to find all the program guidelines and our contact information. Terrific. And Magumi, did, I'm pronouncing your first name correctly. Can you pronounce your last name for me? I hope I was uh, emphasizing the right syllable. Oh, yeah, you, you, you pronounced it perfectly. Yeah, it's Magumi. Uh, my last name is Nagata. Nagata. Okay, perfect. All right, Megumi Nagata with Four Culture. Um, thanks so much for updating us on these special projects. You know, if there's other other grant deadlines related to uh, local history and heritage, please come back on the show again and let's 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 talk about some of the grants that were awarded this year. Let's let's keep the conversation going because you guys do great work, and I know there's lots of great heritage and history organizations that could be uh, wonderful recipients of your grant. So let's let's keep in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Have a good rest of your night. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Magumi Nagata of For Culture with the latest on that grant round coming up um, for special projects. And uh, as she said, their website is For Culture, and it's the numeral four and then the word culture.org. All right. It's Space 101.1 FM. This is Cascade of History on a busy night, a busy late February night in 2023. In just a moment, we're going to speak with Stephanie Johnson-Tolliver, of the Black Heritage Society. She's the president of the Black Heritage Society of Washington. But since it is uh, spring training time, I thought we'd celebrate the fact that professional baseball is not too far ahead in the future with a look back to the theme song of the late, great first Seattle Major League Baseball team. Okay, so maybe lyrically not the most complex song you're ever going to hear about baseball in Seattle, but that is a that is an oldie but a goodie. Um, the name on the uh, on the 45 that I have, which I don't have with me, I'm playing that off a digital recording, but I do have the 45 somewhere at home, and the artist is listed as Doris Doubleday, but it's actually written by Rob Belcher, who was an old uh, sportscaster, he passed away sometime in the last oh god 10 or 15 years I think, but he was a, a sportscaster on a number of different radio stations back in the 50s, 60s, into the 70s even, and he wrote that "Go Go You Pilots" theme song, the, the B side of the 45. You would hope was something like really cool, some different, you know, I don't know, some esoteric B-side to a Pilots, Seattle Pilots, 1969, one and only 
Major League Baseball season theme song. But it's just Go Go You Pilots instrumental. <laughs> so anyway, wonder why they even bother. All right. Well, um, I'm going to bring Stephanie Johnson Tolliver on, on with us right now. Let's see here. We're on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. Stephanie, can you hear me? All right, I can, Taylor. Oh, terrific. Hi. Thank you so much for taking time to join us here on Cascade of History on a Sunday night. How have you been? Oh, just great. That little bit of snow scared me the other night, though, but I'm all good now. You know, I was talking a little bit about the snow right when we started the show because that, there's something about the, um, it was like this right before Christmas, too, the the morning light and the evening light when there's white on all the roofs. It's just to sort of the quality of the, the late or late day or early day light when there's been snow is just I just yeah. I'm obsessed with it. There's something there's that it's so I, bizarre. I know. I just I I love it too, but you know, from the inside out. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, yeah. that ice storm right before Christmas, that was really weird. I think on December twenty third here in Seattle where we had like a sheet of ice everywhere and you couldn't couldn't get I couldn't even walk outside on the sidewalk, it was so slippery. Oh no. And oh. those who tried, I mean, you know, God help them. I don't know yeah. what they were thinking. But well, fortunately, I mean spring's Springs right around the corner, as they say. I think we might get a little more snow later this week, but I think it's. I think uh-huh. the days are getting longer, and all that good stuff's happening. Um, I want to talk to you because I've been. I haven't made it down to Mohai yet for this um, exhibit that's there, the From the Ground uh-huh. Up Black Architects and yeah. Designers. I know it's there through the end of April, so I have a little bit of time. Yeah. But I was intrigued because you guys, uh, Black Heritage Society, created a local component to the show. Yes, I mean, you know, you said From the Ground Up Black Architects and Designers. Um, is an exhibition that um, is an actual is actually a traveling exhibit out of Chicago, the Museum of Science and Industry. But when uh, Mohai signed on for it, um, we talked about you know how can you bring this exhibit and not have this Northwest component, right? That talks about um, the fabulous uh, history and legacy of Black architects here. So that's where it all started in the conversation with. Uh, BHS and Mohai, our institutional partner, um, to bring um, Hassan Kirkland, who is an amazing curatorial consultant, onto the project with Zorn Taylor doing some photography um, to work with Julianne Kidder um, in curation out of Mohai. Just came up with this really fabulous exhibit. I can't wait for you to see it. And, I mean... It's, I don't know, where does, where does Seattle fit in compared to, say, I don't know, Portland or San Francisco or Spokane even in terms of, um, like, number of black architects who were working here, you know, post-World War II, let's say? Oh, the, the numbers, the percentage is so low, so is, very yeah. low. And so um, while this exhibit, the Northwest component, does lean heavy into Benjamin McAdoo Jr., which it should, um, he being the first um, registered architect, black architect in the state of Washington, and then also to have his own firm in Seattle. So it talks about, uh, this exhibit talks about Ben um, arriving at the University of Washington in 1946, um, you know, creating space for himself, um, his own firm, his own business on Capitol Hill, buying an old business, transforming it, you know, into um, a space that was his office and residency. And then from there, um, you know, he becomes this fabulous, uh, what we call today as a citizen architect. 
it's it's someone who just you know applies all of their design um, talent and leadership and puts it together in this big ball of advocacy and civic engagement um, to build with community in mind. And that's exactly what he did. And, and this is probably a dumb question, because most of my questions are dumb, I've noticed. Um, his, in, in 1946, when he goes to the UW, uh, first of all, was he from the Seattle area originally? No, no, he was from, he's from Pasadena. So how did he pick Seattle to go to school? Well, the Department of um, Architecture, the School of Architecture in Seattle was you know, um, I imagine the place to be at the time. Hmm. He he heard about Seattle, and uh, he and his wife moved here um, in 19, well, just a little before 1946. I'm not sure exactly what year, but mm-hmm. he but he completed his study um, in 1946 at oh. the UW. Oh, gotcha. Okay. But did he mm-hmm. face like, like sort of headwinds and racism and in trying to be a student and trying to be a professional architect in Seattle, or was it all like smooth sailing? No, if you can only imagine. I mean, at the time, no, he was um, he was breaking barriers. He was a trailblazer. Okay, yeah. he was the the guy who was pushing the boundaries. He was, um, you know, using uh, his ability, um, his design aesthetic, um, you know, to to build and design. He was. Um, his design was reflective of his purpose, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Okay. Now, he, mm-hmm. does, are there, are there particular buildings that he designed that are, that people might know just, or are they, are they, are there still examples around or? Well, this is what I love too about the exhibition is it talks about not only Ben's buildings, but other buildings that we pass every single day and don't know who built those. And some of those by black architects. And so with Ben McAdoo, um, early on he was designing, um, you know, some modular homes and um, actually came up with a House of Merit prototype. Um, that's a really interesting um, story and um, his, you know, his alignment and um, interest in modernism. But um, one of the buildings um, was that people may not know is the Queen Anne Swimming Pool. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, that was um, one of Ben's buildings. And um, the King County Blood Bank building. Oh, yeah. I know that building. Um, and he um, was instrumental in the the upgrade of the first AME church, you know, on 14th huh. near Madison of the sanctuary and then the larger um, education wing to the church. So... Um, there are some places that are highly recognizable and then others that, you know, are not. But that's what this exhibit is all about, is to be able to share, you know, uh, these buildings. What was that thing you mentioned, the uh, Home of Merit or Building of Merit? What was that? Yes. um, He designed what was called the House of Merit. It was a prototype. It was a, a design that was really interesting um, as he was known for his modernist design. So it's this kind of, uh, on the interior, an unbroken uh, flow of space. There were lots of windows, flat roof. Um, the indoor married the outdoor kind of space. And mm. that was really popular here in the Northwest, right? It's so beautiful here. So with large windows and being able to um, live indoors, but also see the outdoors and uh, and I had a really 
funny experience, too, where um, as I was driving around town, now I'm so aware of this style. I think I see it everywhere now. <laughs> you know, and I even said to Tyler Sprague, who's doing you know, this work and research out of the University of Washington, the uh, Benjamin McAdoo Research Collective, I said, I think my mother's house is a prototype. <laughs> it's windows. It's a flat roof. And he said, yeah, yeah, okay, Beth. Yeah. But, you know, there were at least 80 homes by 1954 that were this prototype in Seattle. So from 1950 to 1954, um, 80 homes were built in this particular style. And are you saying they're sort of flat roof with a lot of windows? Is that kind of the basic? Yes. You yeah. know the, you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, absolutely. Real modern, yes. Huh. Um, you know, and some of them would have attached garages or a decking in the back, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. So, so for sure. Um, and and you, think, you think about what those houses, even now those houses look pretty modern. I mean, there's all sorts of crazy yeah. modern stuff going up in these little narrow lots now all over Seattle. But mm-hmm. you look at Seattle houses from around the turn of the century or the 20s or even the 30s, and then compared to the things you're describing, those early 1950s, those those flat roof and big windows, it right. looks like looks like the Jetsons or Space Age. It's yeah. really, it's, it must have been, exactly. it must have been even, even more crazy radical, you know, 70 years mm-hmm. ago when they were first building those. I know. What's that know. project at the UW they're doing about? There's a, some kind of a macro uh, research project? Yes, it's fabulous. I'm just, like, so excited about um, Tyler Sprague and the team he's working with. Um, Tyler is an associate professor of architecture at um, UW, and he's leading the Benjamin McAdoo Research Collective. Huh. And, yeah, and what they're doing is um, they're... Uh, actually studying um, his design. Um, They're cataloging homes. So they're looking for homes. They're still looking for homes that were from this particular prototype. And um, he's just been really intrigued um, with the social connection of Ben McAdoo, you know, his design as an architect and then his activism. Tell me about his activism. Okay, he was a man of the people um, in 1954. So you know he arrives in Seattle in, excuse me, 1946. By 1954, he decides to run for a seat in the state legislature. Um, He won the primary now, but then he was disqualified due to a residency charge. You know, someone brought a charge saying, well, you know, we're not really sure that He's going to be representing, living in the district that he's representing. and mm. um, But he always felt, and I think everyone else did too at that time, that clearly it was racially motivated yeah. at the time. Yeah. And he then, by 1964, he was president at the Seattle NAACP. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and, and he died at a really young age. He was like 60 when he died in 1981 or something like that? Yes. Oh, yes, man. he did. I think and, so um, many architects, they really sort of kind of come into their own in their 60s and 70s. It's sort of a shame to think of what what he was un, what he missed out on from passing away at such a young age. Yes, but he's left such a legacy. And he and his wife, Thelma, here's something you're really going to love. He and his wife, Thelma, were early founding members at BHS. Oh, that's, that's the Black Heritage Society. That's great. I love all those kind of connections. I remember there was a, I remember getting together with you and some of the Black Heritage Society people. It was was it the, 
was it the 40th anniversary? It's an anniversary event a couple of years ago where we filmed it for the Seattle Channel. Yeah, it was just oh, I love the conversation. I loved, and that's I think where I first ran into Steen Slade and learned about Annie Smith's restaurant there on 14th and Madison yeah. or 22nd and Madison. I, right. With the pandemic, I haven't gotten out much in the last three or four years. <laughs> Like, I got to get out more because yeah, those, those, those face-to-face connections are where these really cool stories and these things that otherwise you wouldn't hear are. about or I wouldn't hear about certainly get, get kind of that's that's where those that's where those connections happen. So I got I got number one, I got to get down to Mohai yeah. before April 30th to see yes, this exhibit. Please. And uh, there's a, a program on Tuesday. Oh, so what's that? A, a public program, the first first of two. So Tuesday, February 28th at 7 p.m. Designing with Intention. Um, it's three generations of black architects. So we've got Don King. Um, there is Whitney Lewis, um, who's very instrumental um, in design for community, and Meredith Everest. So the three of them are going to be talking in conversation um, around what it's like to, to be a black architect in Seattle, um, their experiences. Wow. And then in April, there'll be another program. So you just have to follow online at um, at Mohai where it's all posted with oh. the date for your calendar. So that's that program is this Tuesday, the 28th, and the, the in, 28th. The, in the evening at Mohai. Oh, that's great. Uh, yes, well, in the evening at Mohai. It's going to be great. I wish I could claim that I had you on the show tonight in order to promote that event. I probably shouldn't say anything, but I'm, 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 I feel <laughs> foolish that I didn't know that was happening, but I'm glad it's happening because it's a perfect chance to talk about it. Um, yeah. I have just a, just a minute or two left here, but um, I, you guys, Black Heritage Society, you've been the president now for a couple of years, maybe longer. But oh, I, my God, yes. <laughs> I'm just like, how many terms can a person have? You know? But what I like, I don't know if it's your leadership or if it's the group together or anything, the way you have been partnering with, you know, like Mohai, which you guys have been partnering with for decades. Mm-hmm. But I know like last year or maybe it was a year before you were doing the Green Book exhibit stuff with the Washington State Historical Society down in Tacoma. What, what's up, what's coming in the in the near future? Any other partnerships or other stuff we should be thinking about for 2024? Well, you're going to be hearing from us um, with the Seattle Public Library, more with the Seattle Public Library and a couple of projects, one with the 50th anniversary of the Soul Pole. Ah. You know about, you know about oh, the Soul yeah, Pole yeah, on sure this. Oh, yeah, I sure so do. I sure do. So there's a big, um, uh, there'll be a big celebration and an oral history project aligned to that that's coming up. Um, we've got a couple of projects um lined up with Historic Seattle on some landmarking and just, you know, really beautiful partnerships. You're right, in community with uh, Metier Brewing and um, the Mariners at Steelhead Valley Uh and, uh, you know, telling the history of black baseball there. So we're hoping to do a little podcasting out of there. Uh, this spring. That's great. And, you know, it's February's Black History Month, but I have sort of, I've kind of a love-hate relationship with specific history months because I feel Mm -hmm. like, I, I, anyway, I don't know. I, I don't want to get into that, but it's like, I like having you on the show any time of year. Always reach out yeah. to me if you got stuff coming up. I love having you on here. We'll hear what you guys are up to because there's always cool projects like this, this event coming up Tuesday night at Mohai. If uh, if people want to find out more about Black Heritage Society, where's the best place they, they should go online? How do they find out more? Yeah, the website. That'll tell it all. So www.bhswa.org. And uh, we're inviting people back to the archive. Um, Check in, come in and see what we've got. Um, Do your research or just out of curiosity, make an appointment. Right on. 
Listen, um, Stephanie Johnson-Tolliver, thank you so much for all you do for Black Heritage Society, all those wonderful partnerships, and you're always welcome on Cascade of History to let us know the cool stuff that you guys are doing and that people can participate in. So thanks for joining us here tonight on the show. It's always, it's always lovely to speak with you. Hey, thanks, Felix. I'll talk to you soon. All righty. Have Bye-bye. a good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Stephanie Johnson-Tolliver, president of the Black Heritage Society of Washington State. Uh, she gave the website address there, so there is that program Tuesday night coming up at Mohai. Well, boy, the hour sure went quickly tonight here on the February 26th, 2023 edition of Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM, uh, broadcasting live from the old master-at-arms quarters at historic Sandpoint Naval Air Station, known better these days as Magnuson Park. We're here every Sunday night from 8 to 9 with live conversation talking to people doing cool things with and for Pacific Northwest history. I want to thank all of our guests tonight, um, Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson. Some sobering reminders about this, uh, uh, the National Archives branch here in Seattle. It's not a done deal that that, that thing is here forever. It seems like there's some great opportunities there for community organizations all over the Northwest, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, even Alaska, those four states whose federal materials are represented there in that archives. Seems like there's there's an opportunity there to for that uh, coalition to coalesce again to uh, to make sure those archives are kept here right where they belong. Um, Megumi Nagata of Four Culture, that grant application the deadline for special projects is coming up at the end of March. Fourculture.org has more information there, and of course Stephanie Johnson Tolliver. And do check out the the program at Mohai on Tuesday or the exhibit. It's called From the Ground Up. Black Architects and Designers, and it's there through April 30th, as I've now said over and over again. All right, well, I'm Felix Bunnell. This has been Cascade of History. We're here every Sunday night. Um, Space 101.1 FM has a great website at space101fm.org. There's all sorts of great stuff there, the program schedule, the other great programs that are all run by volunteers and all supported by contributions um, from listeners like you. If you feel like supporting the programming here, you can donate via the website. We love our listeners. We love the fact we get to bring programming to you like Cascade of History and like the other great music programs and everything. So have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday night on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it. That's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bunnell. Yeah.